Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Let the word go forth. Fool me once. Are you fired up? I'm not a crook. Are you ready to go? Shame on, shame on you. It's Abe Lincoln's Top Hat, hosted by Ben Kissel. Boom, we can't get fooled again. Hey, what's up, everyone? How are you? Ben Kissel here. Marcus Parks is busy working on a last podcast on the left to bring you the most highbrow entertainment possible. So it's just me for the first half of the show. Later on, I interview Robert Fitrakis. He is the author of the book, The Strip and Flip Selection of 2016, Five Jim Crows and Electronic Election Theft fascinating interview. Stick around for it. We're talking about vote flipping. We're talking about election fraud. I think it's going to be enlightening. We're discussing the corporations that own our voting machines that are often owned by future politicians or current politicians. And it's a total conflict of interest. We get into Georgia, we get into a bunch of stuff. So be sure you stick around for that. We're also going to get into today uh, this horrific attack uh, that occurred at the Tree of Life Synagogue. 11 individuals mowed down, murdered, massacred by a white supremacist, anti-Semite Robert Bowers. I want to talk a little bit about some of the false equivocations that's being made right now uh, from individuals on the right trying to... Bigotry exists on all sides. We do know that. There are racists everywhere. I mean, who knows uh, where these people are. Um, But I want to talk specifically about the rise of the anti-Semitic extremism over the past two years. According to the Anti-Defamation League, the Jewish Anti-Defamation League, it is up. Anti-Semitic attacks are up 57%. Can't make this stuff up here. I mean, it is a real phenomenon, and it's something that we have to uh, put an end to. Jewish people in in the in America make up 2% of our population and are 50% of bias targets. They make up 2% of our population and are 50% of biased targets. Uh, absolutely fascinating. So we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later on. I also want to talk about a story that I have not heard anyone discussing up to this point, and I think it is absolutely crucial to discuss this. Trump has again raised a much debated question about birthright citizenship. This is basically uh, people who come to this country, they're undocumented or illegal individuals, they have a child, that child is currently granted U.S. citizenship. Donald Trump, he wants to put an end to that, birthright citizenship. He's gonna, he, he wants to take it to the courts, they haven't decided on this yet, 
But this is just a phenomenal turn of events. So I want to talk a little bit about that because hopefully it can get some more coverage uh, going forward. I, it's just another example of where Donald Trump is in his heart and when it comes to his policies on immigration. What would you do if you revoked birthright citizenship? Are the people that were here, uh, that were born on U.S. soil, or are they granted uh, U.S. citizenship? Are they grandfathered in? Or all of a sudden are they now undocumented or illegal? individuals ready at any time to be rounded up by ice i mean it is fascinating times uh, to be alive and definitely there's a lot of things we have got to keep our eye on all right let's first start talking about the bomber they have arrested the man he was indeed as we speculated on last week's episode coming in from florida and i'll tell you one thing there is no indication ladies and gentlemen listen to me here no indication that this man was a trump supporter not even not even a little bit there's no pictures there's no evidence oh what was that oh that's his white van never mind this man <laughs> it was just you remember this after the attacks of course uh, rush limbaugh and you know whatever uh, alex jones and Sean Hannity, they're like, it's very possible that this is a liberal plot. The liberals sent the bombs to themselves, of course. And then it turns out it's a fellow named Caesar Sayoc out of Florida. And let's just say he wears his political affiliations on his windshield because his car is covered covered in pro-Trump pictures, uh, in imagery, things like CNN sucks. And, you know, again, we can all kind of agree on that sometimes, but who knows? Uh, we got targets over Hillary Clinton's face. We got targets over Barack Obama's face. Uh, I mean, the man is just obviously a crazed lunatic. This is not the first time he has sent bombs or threats. He has a long history of arrests. Interesting character. He's a former, uh, former male entertainer former male stripper. He also, in a strange turn of events, was a pizza delivery driver. And I just got to say, and that was that's his most recent job. I got to say, if you're getting a pizza delivered and this guy shows up in that white van, you're like, is that the pizza delivery driver or is this person trying to kidnap my children? I can't tell the difference because there is no visibility whatsoever into this into this extremely creepy white van. So Caesar Sayak, he was he broadcast his support for Donald Trump. He was not shy about it, not just in real life. Uh, he I, there was an interview that I saw with his former manager at this pizza shop. She was a lesbian woman, and um, she was telling uh, the news personality how Caesar Sayak he hated gay people, he hated uh, Jewish individuals, he hated black people, he hated Hispanic people, he hated everyone. He was a white supremacist. I don't know uh, quite how this is possible, but nonetheless, it is what it is. And she said. Out of the goodness of her heart, she could not fire him for political beliefs. I think she put up with a hell of a lot of harassment for a manager to be dealing with that from a uh, from an employee. Uh, but nonetheless, it is what it is. They only let him deliver pizzas. They only let him deliver pizzas at night because they did not want anyone to see the white van. Just going to say, don't think this is the job for him. Nonetheless, so we know who did it. Caesar Sayak, he is currently uh, being charged with sending 13 pipe bombs. Now, they speculate perhaps some more are in the mail. Who knows? I would assume that those would be, if there are any more in the mail, those will be found really quickly because it's pretty similar packaging that he had. Not the most elaborate, not the most elaborate packaging, nor pipe bombs in general. And thank God, none of them went off. 
the FBI got on this guy pretty quickly. They lifted fingerprints off of the pipe bombs because he wrapped all of the pipe bombs in scotch tape. Again, the dumbest thing you could possibly do when you don't want to leave fingerprints uh, is just wrap everything in a uh, adhesive substance that will most likely pick up a fingerprint or two, not to mention hair samples and DNA. So they were on this guy within 48 hours. And again, the white van, kind of a dead giveaway. If you are in the Florida area and you have to uh, speculate or um, look into or investigate a neighbor that may or may not be sending pipe bombs to Democrats all over the country. I'm just assuming you look in the parking lot of the man with the white van that is covered in pro-Trump stickers that has, again, a bunch of targets all over uh, over the faces of, uh, of Democratic leadership. Um, so anyway, so this seems like this case is now... Uh, it's in the past and we'll, you know, the trial will happen. We'll see if he's charged with terrorism. I don't believe that has come out yet if they are going to charge him with that. Uh, this is according to a lawyer who represented Sayak in the past. He says, I think this is a post-Trump sort of enticing somebody who maybe had some deep-seated issues. And this recent political climate seems to be bringing it to the surface with some people. That was from Daniel Lurvey, again, a former lawyer who represented Sayok in the past. So let's talk about that for a second. Culture, just the mood of the country under Donald Trump. Again, this lawyer says, I think this is a post-Trump sort of enticing somebody who maybe had some deep-seated issues, and this recent political climate seems to be bringing it to the surface with some people. Obviously, the number one person we have to blame in this attempted bombing is Caesar Sayak, but there is no denying that the mood of the country has become extremely divisive, extremely adversarial, and that is a direct reflection of the politics and the political tone coming from Washington and specifically coming from uh, the Trump administration. So you cannot deny that Donald Trump didn't really, you know, again, as I mentioned in the last episode, kind of checked off the boxes of, uh, of showing support or giving a mild amount of condolences, but he didn't call any of the individuals who were targeted. Maxine Waters, again, John Brennan, uh, the Obamas, Clinton, Soros, um, De Niro, Robert, he didn't even call De Niro. Come on, you would think that the, you would think Trump would love to call Robert De Niro. Maybe try to mend some fences there, but nonetheless, he did not do it. So you can't deny that these people, Caesar Sayak, as I mentioned before, long history of madness. This dude is crazy. There is like he is nuts. Um, and the problem is we got a lot of people who are crazy in this country. There's just, hey, we're all people and there's just a lot of people crazy globally and there's a lot of people crazy locally. And when you have a politician who is constantly stoking that kind of anger and, uh, you know, embracing that kind of disdain for their political opponents, it is something that can push an individual over the edge or feel as if it make an individual feel as if they have license or like they're being encouraged to do something like this, not realizing that, as I've mentioned many times before, Donald Trump isn't going to bail your ass out of jail. He's not going to get you're, you're not going to get pardoned. I promise you that if you actually take the rhetoric to fruition, you actually start punching people of the political opposition. You actually start sending them pipe bombs. You're going away. Donald Trump ain't going to help you no matter how many posters you put on your white van supporting him. So please, there is no denying that the rhetoric um, has helped tilt 
the uh, the rationale of this country in the wrong direction. And it definitely has given justification in the minds of some people already mentally unstable. But it has given justification to the mentally unstable to say, hey, you know what? I think the president might actually like this. I think he might be down if I send a couple of pipe bombs to some political opponents as we talk about lock her up and all this kind of stuff. So uh, we got the guy who sent the bombs. The FBI was on him right away. Thank God none of the bombs went off. It is my understanding. They were workable, I suppose. Uh, They could have exploded. I don't think he did a great job. Not an expert. Not really an expert on anything. He seems sort of like a kind of a, a permanent drifter and someone who everyone agreed was mentally unstable. So those are the people we have got to look out for in this country. And we have to remember that. And politicians got to remember that um, every politician who holds office right now, there are crazy people out there and messaging matters. Words matter. And just because you don't think that someone would do something as crazy as this, you never know. My my faith in uh, the sanity of the country is sort of eroded on a daily basis. But nonetheless, Caesar Sayak, he has been arrested and he will be going away. I think right now they have him at around 50 years. But of course, they'll continue to add charges as the investigation continues. So let's move on to this extremely tragic uh, event that happened at a synagogue. It was 950 in the morning. An anti-Semite named Robert Bowers opened fire on a service that was taking place upstairs. Uh, He was using the AR-15 style assault rifle. The synagogue was the tree of life. Uh, Many congregants at the synagogue ran down to the basement when the shooting started. They were hiding there. And it was a horrible scene. This is according to Barry Warber. He's 76 years old. And that's what, you know, this... This reminds me a little bit of Dylan Roof in the sense that, first of all, that was a hate crime. This is a hate crime. And the age, the age of these people, they were all well over 50 years old, some as old as their 90s. A woman who survived uh, the Holocaust, I believe she was 92 years old. I mean, this guy, how do you look at the face of an elderly individual, not let alone any individual, but an elderly individual at a place of worship, the place that is supposed to be safe, one of those, the holy ground for a lot of people, and shoot them point blank. This is according to Barry Werber. He's a 76-year-old who was on the lower level. He told the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, let me be very honest. I was frightened. I was scared. I have a wife at home ill, and I have a son living in Squirrel Hill, and I didn't want to leave them devastating. Werber and others from his congregation looked over the stairwell and their worst fears were realized when they saw a victim's bullet-riddled body slumped over. Rabbi Jonathan Perlman quickly ushered them into a storage closet as the gunfire continued. Werber was the one who called 911. Perhaps there were some other people who called 911 as well, but Werber dialed 911. He was too scared to speak because he was worried that Robert Bowers was going to hear him talking and hunt him down as well. So following a lengthy pause in the gunfire, Melvin Wax, and again, this individual is 88 years old. These people are supposed to be in their twilight. These are supposed to be people who are uh, living out the rest of their days in as much peace as humanly possible. 88 years old, after a lengthy pause, Congregate Melvin Wax opened the door to the basement to see if it was safe to leave. Bowers gunned him down instantly. 
We have an 88-year-old guy, a pause in the in the gunfire, opens the door, and this anti-Semitic monster gunned this 88-year-old man down. There were three shots, and he falls back into the room where we were. That's, again, according to uh, Mr. Werber, that is Barry Werber. So you can just get the feeling of what this was like there. It reminds me of this uh, of that film Panic Room. You know, you're just in there. You, you don't know what the hell's going on. You hear the gunfire. Takes a small break. You peek out the door. You take a step out. Next thing you know, you're dead. He falls in. Now they, I mean, this is, it's a horrific, horrific event. I mean, and now we have, um, as I mentioned earlier, just the rise of anti-Semitic violence. There has been some people, and this is what I hate, the whataboutism. So the right has said, you know, this is also something that the left is complicit in. Okay, I will give you this. Louis Farrakhan, yes, okay, I, I agree. He's an anti-Semite. He tweeted out, I'm not, I'm not an anti-Semite. This is a Louis Farrakhan tweet. He said, I'm not an anti-Semite, I'm anti-termite. Okay, that's about as anti-Semitic as it can possibly get. Completely agree with you. There's a Venn diagram of far, far extremist leftists and far, far extremist right groups uh, that are anti-Semitic. But right now in this country, where it is manifesting itself the most, what the movement has been, um, the the main anti-Semitic movement where it has been solidified has been the right, and specifically the alt-right, again, as we saw with Charlottesville and so on and so forth. So what's going on right now? The Anti-Defamation League logged a 57% rise in anti-Semitic incidents in the United States in 2017. Now, that was compared to the previous year. Now, what do these threats look like? They include bomb threats, assaults, vandalism, anti-Semitic posters, and literature found on college campuses. This is a spokesperson for the Anti-Defamation League. They said this uh, before Saturday's shooting, which is the deadliest anti-Semitic attack. The next worst anti-Semitic attack was in 1985 when a man killed a family of four in Seattle who he mistakenly thought was Jewish. So they weren't, I mean, not... it's just ridiculous the ignorance of these bigots who don't even don't even know who they hate. <laughs> it reminds me of what happened in Wisconsin with the Sikh shooting, where a man thought he was uh, shooting up a, a Muslim mosque, and instead he killed a bunch of Sikhs. And of course, Sikhs—it's uh, a wonderful religion, full of peace and um, and just completely just not not at all what he thought it was. So I want to talk with Travis Morningstar a little bit because he's a little younger and he knows more about the internet than I do. Apparently this guy, Robert Bowers, apparently he was, he posted on this website called Gab. Yeah. Now Gab, is is it, so so is Gab a Twitter for like racists? I mean, that's exactly, I mean, it, uh, Robert Bowers was a verified user on Gab. He was verified. Yes, and he, he had a check mark. And his bio, was, really, his bio was uh, "Jews are the children of Satan." That's, huh. And that is exactly the kind of thing you can do on Gab. It does not advertise itself as a as a Twitter for racists, but okay. it, that is exactly what it is. It it is a Twitter clone under the guise of. Um, protecting free speech i and so see everyone who is too virulently racist for uh-huh. twitter gets kicked off and then they're thrown in the dumpster that is gab which is a relatively new social media platform okay but how many people are on gab 
Do we know? Is it? Is it? I mean, obviously, it can't be as big well, as Twitter or Facebook or it, any of that stuff. It actually doesn't matter because uh, GoDaddy just suspended their website yesterday. Oh, they did. <laughs> yes, GoDaddy of the saucy Danica Patrick ads. But yeah, so they're like it's a recently it's a kind of a new social media platform, and it just got its first um, experimental uh, user going. Uh, you know, crazy on a right. synagogue. Like that, that is where, you know, like Twitter, you can um, post jokes and then maybe like accidentally get hired to a Comedy Central job. Mm-hmm. This right. is like the kind of thing where you, uh, tw- you uh, not tweet, you gab out, I guess, uh, things like, see what he, he, he uh, posted HIAS, which is the, um, it's an immigration, Israeli immigration uh, program. Okay. HIAS likes to bring invaders in that kill our people. I can't sit by and watch my people get slaughtered. Screw your optics. I'm going in. And that was his well, last post. And that's the kind of thing you can oh post on God. Gab. Okay, buddy. You just slaughtered a group of senior citizens. I mean, this is unbelievable. So that is, you know, that's the difficult thing. Gab, by the way, it sounds like a, it sounds like. Ack. Sounds like, it's such a Kathy name. Like, I'm on Gab and I'm an anti Semite. It's like, really? Gab is like such a uh, yeah, innocuous like, word. It's racist but sassy. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, if you don't like me at my Gab, you won't like me at my racism. Um, so. That is fascinating, and and that's the hard thing when when it comes to the First Amendment. And obviously, these are private uh, corporations; they can kick you off whenever they want to kick you off. I mean, I don't even use this Twitter stuff and all that nonsense. I blast out some shows and I read some of your tweets, and they're always very nice. So thank you for that. But the question is, when do you see this hate speech or this? I mean, which is protected? When do you see this speech as like, oh, this is the moment where now? Violence is going to occur and we have to intervene. It seems to me like that last post was pretty much, I'm going in, uh, that was pretty on the nose when it comes to what is this guy about to do. Yeah. So Providing a platform for these people to work themselves up into this froth right. is obviously, it just doesn't work. You have to silence this kind of hatred. You have to nip it in the bud. You can't give an alternative platform. I mean, you know, if you're not getting enough, if 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 Reddit is like too liberal for you, I don't know what's <laughs> happening. You can say quite a bit. Even David French. Now, he is by no means a leftist, no means a Democrat. He works for the National Review, obviously a conservative publication. They went never Trump and sort of find themselves in this kind of purgatory gray zone where no one really knows what to do with their ideology at this point in this world uh, or this time of Trumpism. David French, he's Jewish, was sent some of the worst images that you can imagine. He was sent a picture of his child in a gas chamber. I mean, this stuff did not just happen uh, regularly before what is going on right now in American politics. This is unique to our time. And again, this sort of normalization of these uh, antics, of this imagery, of these, you know, just hate-filled language really is coming uh, to fruition. And we're seeing itself manifest itself in reality. And what does it look like? It looks like 11 people dead at the Tree of Life synagogue because some maniac said that the Jews are coming over here um, to kill us, and then naturally he is the one who commits a massacre. And let's not forget what the 
golf pant wearing red shirt target looking douchebags at the at the Charlottesville march were chanting Jews will not replace us. This is one of their chants. And it's like, no kidding, because frankly, they don't have the numbers. Um, I mean, it is insane uh, to think that somehow the political rhetoric of our time is not adding fuel to this hate fire. You can't deny it. You can't put your head in the sand. It is what it is um, because we just did not see the same level of anti-Semitic attacks as we're seeing now. So, and there has to be, what's the difference? What has changed? What is, what happened? What was the big event that happened in 2016, you know? So we got to remember that we have to stay vigilant. And it it is, again, we see the guy in the van with all the Trump uh, stickers, all of this stuff. And then we got this guy on Gap talking, uh, saying horrible things about Jewish people, talking about how he's going in. And the fine line is, when do you say you got a First Amendment right to speech? And then when, when does it cross over to this person's about to commit a violent act against innocent American citizens? That is the difficult balancing act we're working on right now as a country and this is where this conversation has been going on for a long time where does the first amendment end uh you know it's pretty broad in this country thank god for it you know there's a lot of places that don't have it and uh, their societies are worse off because of that we got it but we have to be careful and we have to be vigilant when it comes to okay when does your don't tread on me become i'll just tread all over you but please don't fight back would you don't tread out that's offensive to me the way that you the, the way that you fought back when i was trying uh to shoot you so a uh, horrible massacre our hearts are with everyone out there uh in pittsburgh uh, donald trump is going he's having a campaign style rally out there a lot of people think it's inappropriate you know he's never gonna stop that's where that's his little womb that's his little cradle he loves to be around his fans And uh, I'm sure he'll get a big crowd out there. And a lot of people involved uh, wished he hadn't come because the logistics of it, not just because of politics, um, because there are some uh, Jewish Americans who really do like Donald Trump. And let's not forget, Ivanka is Jewish. Jared Kushner, the the right-hand man of the president, is Jewish. I'm not saying that Donald Trump is anti-Semitic. I'm just saying uh, there are some factions within his coalition that without a doubt, are the alt-right, Richard Spencer, Milo, all these whatever, these proud whatever they are, um, you know, just a bunch of maniacs. And I would argue that without that group, without that faction in Donald Trump's political coalition, he wouldn't win. So he needs it. So he know, And he knows he needs it. So regardless of the fact uh, that Donald Trump himself, obviously I don't believe is anti-Semitic because of uh, his family and just his history, um, but my God, is he not leaving leaving the door wide open for individuals like that to walk in and seek solace uh, in his uh, living room there? So there is no denying that. So he's holding a rally. Some folks don't want him to be there for political reasons. Some say, hey, it's fine if he comes. But the logistical reasons alone are going to really um, put a wrench in everything that the Pittsburgh has to do right now. We have 11 funerals. This is not normal. 
They have 11 funerals to get through. And when when a president comes to town, as we have saw when we were out in L.A. a couple of years back, Obama came to town and the entire west side of Los Angeles is closed, like the whole thing. And so everyone, even the most liberal people in the world were cursing Obama's name that day because traffic was a nightmare and everything uh, gets rerouted and it's horrible. Um, when a president comes to town, the Secret Service is, you know, they, they go all over the place. And especially, I would imagine in this presidency, with this presidency, the Secret Service is probably working overtime, given the animosity of um, of our time. And again, uh, you know, when it comes to violence, I don't care who you are. It's not it's not right that Bernie Sanders supporter uh, who shot up the, the Republicans there. Horrible. Just don't. And thank, thankfully, no one died in that. Um, but we're seeing it. And I think it is specific right now. There is a direct correlation between the rhetoric coming from the White House, the dog whistle politics, when, as, as Marcus mentioned on the last episode, when Donald Trump says globalists, the globalists, he's talking about Jewish people, at least in the minds of some. Uh, he's talking about Jewish people, the George Soros's of the world. Uh, so that stuff, that dog whistle stuff, the denouncing, that denouncing of Charlottesville, I just think was still the worst moment in this presidency, because that was the first time we realized officially, or at least a lot of people in the nation realized officially that this guy is not going to be a president for everyone, that this dude understands to survive politically, he's going to have to wink and nod to these people with tiki torches chanting things like Jews will not replace us. So that is my uh, little hot take on that. And again, my sympathies with everybody uh, in uh, Pittsburgh. And we got to we gotta curb the rhetoric. And we have to, and if, you know, just, I don't even know. I, uh, a part of me just wants to be like, just go be friends with, with your neighbor. And I, maybe that works. I don't know. Sometimes these people don't want to be friends, um, uh, specifically if they're hoarding a bunch of weapons and uh, spending their entire nights on Gab. This is according to Deborah E. Lipstadt. She's a professor of Holocaust history at Emory University. This is what she said regarding the rise of anti-Semitic attacks. She says, I am not a chicken little who's always yelling. It's worse than it's ever been. But now I think it's worse than it's ever been. That, that according to Deborah Lipstadt, a professor, again, of Holocaust history at Emory University. And of course, she's talking about in the context of this country, because we know the history and how bad it can possibly get, which is something we have to remember because history can uh, repeat itself. All right. Lastly, before we get to the interview with Robert Fetrakis, again, you're going to love this interview. It's fascinating stuff. I want to talk about this. So President Trump resurrected a much heated debate about the rarely tested legal question when he said he planned to issue an executive order, another one of these executive orders. Remember that when everyone demonized Obama for signing executive orders, even though Obama signed less executive orders than W. Bush and Bill Clinton by like a lot. Donald Trump wants to sign or plans to sign an executive order that would end the automatic grant of citizenship to those born in this country to non-citizens. This is crazy. Legal experts have debated for years how to interpret the citizenship clause of the 14th Amendment. Most of them agree the long-held practice of granting citizenship to those born on U.S. soil is good and is accurate. The text of the amendment says this, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state 
wherein they reside. Eh, Pretty clear to me. If you were born in this country, regardless of uh, family lineage, you are an American citizen. This idea of taking away birthright citizenship would, if that happened when the Germans were coming over, when the Irish were coming over, uh, the Italians were coming over, we wouldn't have a country. Some legal scholars argue that the phrase, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, seems to give the government leeway to restrict the right. Now, others just say that simply is not the case. So this is according to Isla Shapiro of the Libertarian Cato Institute. She says, regardless of whether birthright citizenship is a good idea, it's enshrined in the 14th Amendment, and so would take another constitutional amendment to change. And again, this is not some liberal think tank. This is the Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank institute that was Isla Shapiro. And actually, the Cato Institute's really interesting. They did a uh, study on single payer healthcare, and they actually came out as opposed to what we have now. And they actually came out with the findings that single payer would save the government some cash. It's a really interesting read, and I should do a deep dive on it one of these episodes, but it's like a lot. There's a, It's a lot of pages, um, but it's interesting. The Cato Institute, I think they try to be as fair as possible, and I, and I do like reading them. So again, uh, this is the quote. Regardless of whether birthright citizenship is a good idea, it's enshrined in the 14th Amendment, and so would take another constitutional amendment to change, which I do not believe uh, we would be able to do. Two-thirds, I don't think that's going to happen. So there's an active academic debate over whether mere legalization could change it with respect to illegal immigrants and tourists, but regardless, it's not something that can be done by executive action alone. So Donald Trump, again, wants to circumvent Congress, wants to circumvent the checks and balances of our country, and sign an executive order banning birthright citizenship. This is a huge story, and I really hope it gets picked up more going forth because uh, this would devastate millions of Americans. And again, what do you do with the folks who are already here? I mean, it is we are really going there, people, and we're seeing it in real time. This anti-immigration rhetoric now trying to revoke citizenship or change what it means to be a citizen— it's unbelievable. And this guy wants to do it with a, with an executive order. No political debate, no discussion, no uh, Senate vote, no House vote, nothing. Just an executive order. And you know all that does? It makes the courts decide. So now we have a Republican Party or a lot of people on the right who thinks the courts have too much power. Well, all this does, because you're circumventing Congress, is force the courts to decide this and you give them all of the power when you sign these executive orders. It's ridiculous. So that's something we're going to continue to watch. And again, uh, let me know what you think about it. You can DM me at uh, Ben Kissel one on Instagram. All right. So a lot of stuff to pay attention to here going forward. And again, we are just a, a week or less away from the midterms, ladies and gentlemen. So go out there, make sure your vote is heard. Now, this conversation I am uh, about to have with Robert Fetrakis. He is the author, again, of The Strip and Flip Selection of 2016, Five Jim Crows and Electronic Election Theft. It's interesting what's going on in Texas. Uh, We're seeing people who voted for Beto saying it voted for Cruz. I also saw some examples of it happening, uh, the uh, vice versa. Uh, It's a calibration issue. We talk all about voting machines and what's going on 
with Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams in Georgia. We talk a lot about that. Secretary of State Brian Kemp being in charge of purging the voter rolls, even though he's running uh, for governor. He's running in a gubernatorial election. And he's in charge of who can vote and who can't vote, specifically in this time where Stacey Abrams, the first African-American female, potential first African-American female to be the governor of Georgia. She registered a lot of African-Americans and the purge that is happening to that community cannot be understated. So enjoy this interview with Robert Fetrakis. It's always enlightening when we think about the corporations that really control our elections and undermine our democratic process. I want to welcome to the show uh, author and uh, good friend of the show, Dr. Robert Fetrakis. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show, dude. All right. Glad to be here, man. All right, so you are an expert on uh, what goes on regarding uh, voting machines and how they can be flipped. We talked about this extensively, what happened in Ohio in 2004, and now it seems like we're seeing things uh, reminiscent of 2004 when perhaps George W. Bush flipped the vote to uh, to uh, switch it from John Kerry to himself, which then inevitably led to his presidency. So I just want to talk to you first off. We're going to talk about Stacey Adams and Brian Kemp in Georgia. But before that, I want to talk to you about what we've been seeing in Texas regarding the Beto O'Rourke versus Ted Cruz Senate election. It seems as if a lot of people, and this is happening evidently on both with both of uh, political affiliations. People say they voted for Cruz and it comes out they voted for Beto and vice versa, Beto, uh, then going for Cruz. What the heck is going on in Texas? Well, uh, either somebody's trying to rig the election, which is usually the case, or you have uh, what they politely call a calibration problem, hmm. meaning the machines were programmed wrong. The, the, uh, the Cruz thing is interesting because you're voting a... Uh, in many cases, the people reporting it, the pattern was they were voting a straight Democratic Party ticket. Right. And when they glanced back, uh, Cruz was uh, now a Democrat, and they were casting a vote for the uh, uh, Republican instead of the Democrat. Hmm. And again, uh, that, that one is uh, more suspicious because that seems like it would take some special uh, programming. Well, now, when you say it's a calibration issue, what does that mean to us? Like, I don't even know. How do you, how how does that even begin to happen? Well, I mean, it can happen a lot of ways. Uh, for the most part, it could happen intentionally. Right. Uh, I mean, in, uh, in Ohio in 2004, which you already referenced, uh, we had two separate things. We, we had uh, Mahoney County, which is Youngstown, uh, famous, uh, you know, for its mob activities. But... Uh, they admitted 31, 31 of their machines were flipping. Jeez. They were improperly calibrated. So there, right. there's a ballot configuration that mm -hmm. comes up on your computer voting machine. They call it, you know, the ballot configuration. Uh, right. Make sure you're, you know, you're getting the right Senate district, you know, if it's state Senate or the right U.S. Congress district. Sure. Your ballot comes up. And the problem is that the names are in a, a location. So say you vote uh, for the Democratic uh, Party candidate, okay. uh, John Kerry, but the vote records for George Bush. Well, my question uh, is, 
out of all we have so much technology and this is let's let's forget about 04 tech was a little bit different let's just um fast forward to now they're still losing uh using a lot of the same machines they're They're using the same machines yeah most of that money Mm. because of money most of that money came out uh after the disaster of 2000 and a lot of it uh was spent for the 04 election right and a lot of the new money uh and some of it coming uh, now from the states, uh, Ohio just allocated its money this year, and there's tremendous technology they could use. Right. They just haven't got around to implementing it uh, for its uh, statewide election. All right. So what is why the delay on this? We talked about this a couple of episodes ago. We waste so much money in this country on random, whether it be. Uh, building a wall with the rhetoric on that, whatever it might be. We spend a lot of cash on this country uh, that goes nowhere. Why can't we get our voting machines to work? It doesn't seem like this computer has that difficult of a job. It has one purpose, and it's not even doing that correct. Is there something nefarious going on here? Uh, Yes. No, I think so. On the other hand, the nature of the voting machine system, you don't know because they're absolutely non-transparent, right? right. You, you begin with the assumption that private, partisan, for-profit entities should secretly program the computers instead of public officials. Right. So it starts with, who knows? I mean... Uh, and why shouldn't the Chinese and the Russians get in on it? I mean, you've got private uh, companies in the U.S. that may be able to do it uh, and who really have cobbled together systems. A lot of their profits, they, they have a lot of these old machines. For mm-hmm. example, e- ESNS has a really good uh, central tabulator, an 850, uh, but they're still selling the garbage 650 uh, which 26 states are using in mm. uh, some form, and everyone knows it has a massive security fraud. Uh, Maryland and so, Alabama are to be congratulated. Uh, they made ESNS take the cellular connections. You, you could dial in, you know, to fix the machine, but you oh could also God. dial in to fix the votes. You know, wow. and, uh, and so Alabama said, you can't have this. It makes no sense. Uh, it's easier to make money off these old machines by cobbling mm-hmm. together parts using outdated, um, you know, software, uh, etc. Et oh. And they were never designed to be part of critical infrastructure to be protected under Homeland Security. They, is, they never were given that mandate. Uh, we're, right. we're thinking about that now. Right. That is absolutely fascinating. You know, we hear all th- uh, this kind of buzzword like shadow government, all this kind of stuff. What about shadow corporations like ES&S? Why don't we dis- discuss the fact that this corporation is in charge of over half of our voting machines? Why don't we know this corporation's name? What I- What is... You know what? To channel my inner Jerry Seinfeld, what's the deal uh, with this corporation? What are they all about? Well, they're they're about having a monopoly over uh, you know voting in the U.S. I mean, they're number one. Do they have a political bent though? Do they or do they do they pretend to be politically neutral or do you have any insight into what what's the soul of this company look like? Well, uh, historically, uh, you know, you've had politicians. Uh, that have, uh, you know, 
uh, been part owners in that company going back uh, mm. far enough uh, in ES&S. And for a while it was owned by uh, uh, the Omaha News Herald. I think it still uh, is uh, listed as one of their companies. Uh, and uh, Buffett had a, a stake in that for a while. Mm. Uh, and uh, Chuck Hagel. Chuck Hagel was one of the owners when he won in a surprise upset, getting unexpected votes among black voters. Uh, really? In, in cities. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's in the public record. So uh, how, is that, how is that allowed for someone who is running for office? And there's, no can... law, there's no law prohibiting it. Remember that uh, hmm. friends, uh, you know, former members of Bain Company bought up Hard Inner Civic uh, of Texas. Uh, in 2012, uh, a month or so after uh, Romney uh, announced he was running that year. Right. So, of course, Bain, I believe Romney, what was he on? the? He was on the board or the CEO, something like this, right? Right. Yeah, it was the company he had founded. So uh, a lot of those guys left and went to uh, Hig Capital, and they bought up the third largest vote company in the United States, Hart Inner Civic. Right. And it wasn't illegal. That's the more interesting part. And nor so it's not illegal, and nor was it a story. I don't understand how media wouldn't pick up on this as a massive conflict of interest. Let's pivot a little bit to present day, current midterm elections. Stacey Abrams going against Brian Kemp in the state of Georgia. He's the Secretary of State. He is currently in charge of the voting rolls. How in the world are we supposed to expect that that vote? is going to be fair when one of the gubernatorial candidates is in charge of purging people from the rolls. Right. It's all, you know, they've already what we call a stripped it, uh, which makes it easier to flip it because, you know, you strip a lot of the voters, which makes it mm -hmm. uh, close. And uh, so it's no longer an upset. But, uh, you know, numbers were as high since 2017. They've purged about 665,000 voters in Georgia. Uh, in the run-up to the 2016 election between 2012 and 2016 in Ohio, they purged a million fifty thousand voters. Uh, and again, that that Secretary of State John Houston is now running on a ticket uh, as Lieutenant Governor with Mike DeWine. So, wow. uh, and here's the question that the media never asks. And mm -hmm. In a state like Ohio and these other states, in Ohio, it's an ID state. Why would you purge anybody short of death or them moving if mm -hmm. they have to produce ID? I mean, right. it's a data bank, you know. Right. Uh, and in fact, Houston went to court and the Supreme Court voted five to four that you can used to be able to purge somebody after uh, eight years of not voting mm -hmm. in federal elections. It was known as two federal election cycles. So okay. that meant a presidential, a midterm, a presidential, a midterm. Mm -hmm. uh, now you can purge somebody in one year, right, if they don't vote in uh, the primary or in, a, say, a special election like we had in the 12th District. Right. They haven't voted in two federal elections, despite the fact they may have voted in a local election. You can purge wow. them, even though it's a ID state. I mean, we know that mm -hmm. computers can hold the names of these people. We know right. if there's concern, you could put a star by them and say, make sure you look at their ID close. Sure. Uh, I mean, why are you purging anyone in ID states uh, if their ID, if their utility bill or their you know, driver's license, 
matches the address, you know, they can't vote. I mean, if it's in the book, it should be in the book. Right. So when you mention stripping and purging, what is that? How does that actually work? Obviously, we talk about our constitutional right to vote, which does seem to be going back to what Brian Kemp himself was saying at a uh, local tavern there in Georgia, talking about how he's concerned, how Stacey Abrams is bringing out the vote and he he wishes that less people would vote. It would benefit him politically. How does that work when you actually do strip someone of their constitutional right to vote? What's the what's the I, uh, what what is the term they use or the rationale behind them doing that? Well, first of all, if we were in the European Union, uh, it's a command, a shall. The election officials shall register their citizens to vote. Okay. Uh, you know, we live in the greatest spy surveillance state on earth. Mm-hmm. They they know everyone through massive databases, mm-hmm. public and private. Uh, they know who citizens are. It'd be easy to register people to vote, to have a system where everyone you know, is opted in unless for uh, reasons, you know, race, creed, religions, whatever the reason is, you want to opt out. But right. uh, in uh, we don't have that mandate here. In hmm. fact, the Supreme Court has particularly, since the uh, striking down of the Voting Rights Act of 65, the operative formula, uh, we've seen this new era of massive purges. It's all left up to the states. So right. the, the sta- each of the 50 states, and in a lot of areas, you know, if you deliberately purge someone, uh, the remedy often from federal judges here in Ohio is $500. That's your compensation, compensation for having your constitutional rights stripped. We you don't have $500? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they've, we've had numerous decisions on that level. We wow. don't have in our Constitution a constitutional right to vote. Uh, in fact, we were founded on, you know, about 5% of the population voting. We've had a long history of voter repression. Paul Weyrich, you know, people... Uh, put goo-goo in, you know, just G-O-O-G-O-O and voting, his uh, video will pop up where he's, you know, uh, speaking to various conservative forces uh, that he was associated with, uh, the moral majority and and other forces, and saying, look, we don't want everyone to vote. We want to suppress the vote. We want the vote to be low, to paraphrase what he was saying. So when it comes to the purging of the vote, first of all, I want to know, in your mind, what party does it better? Are both complicit in this? Uh, is this just part of the sort of um, oligarchy trying to just put in people uh, in the government, perhaps something like what was Mitt Romney was trying to pull off? Uh, of course, did not work out for him uh, in 2012. Uh, who do you think is more, I don't know, who's better at doing this? Well, I think the Republicans are better at doing it. And again, the, the best way to think about this uh, is these are private companies also, like uh, Triad. Triad with the Rapp family here in Ohio, it's one of the leading right-to-life families. In okay. fact, a lot, a lot of the apparatus in Ohio around computer voting and equally as important to computerize uh, voting rolls, uh, which is also big data. Uh, they're better at it because uh, the easiest people to target uh, are, of course, uh, blacks. 
because of their propensity to vote over 90% uh, Democratic. Right, so, right. Uh, it, it, it's much more difficult, uh, although there are databases out there, uh, to pinpoint the white population, which is also more dispersed in rural areas and under the protection of a county board of elections. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, uh, in many cases, like we found in Cleveland, it's also easier to compromise uh, certain white elements of the Democratic Party that still may have an interest in controlling the county, say Cuyahoga County, uh, which was what was happening during the mass purges uh, over the last decade in, in Cleveland, is hmm. that in order for them to retain power within the urban county, they also have an interest in purging minority and poor voters. So it seems like the same group of individuals are on the chopping block year after year after year. And the question then is, we talk about low voter turnout. You know, we talked about this a couple of uh, episodes ago as well. Uh, Everyone's talking about how we're up 56% uh, more voting in the primaries than previous. Um, But the sad thing is for the Democrats previously, they were voting at about 4.7% and now they're at about 10% and the Republicans are up uh, from like 6% to 8%. Still no one is voting specifically in the primaries. Um, And then, of course, the midterms, we're talking about, you know, high voter turnout. It's going to happen. How do people trust the system and how do they get out and vote when it seems like we have situations in Texas? We have situations in Georgia. What what would you recommend to people who are feeling skeptical about their vote, not just being counted, but as a matter of fact, going to an opponent like we're seeing in Texas, you imagine that you're going to vote for Beto and you end up voting, not just not voting, but voting for Ted Cruz. Yeah, that's that's a huge problem. And the only way to solve that is to vote and immediately, re, uh, re, you know, record that uh, report that in. And, uh, and we've asked people to actually bring yellow police tape if they can get a hold of it and rope off the area. Uh, under, uh, we, we argue it's the necessity uh, defense. If you okay. know votes are jumping, uh, we had the Franklin County fade, not only in uh, four, uh, we also had one where your vote fades away and it's then a undervote. And you can see these patterns all over the country uh, right. in certain counties where suddenly you've got 16% uh, undervote. People are showing up and not voting for the top of the ticket, which is absurd because right. that's got the highest rate of voting. It shouldn't have the lowest. It shouldn't be down there with the municipal judge and the county auditor. Yeah, no one ever shows up to vote for the. They'll, we're lucky to get them out in a presidential election, not to mention one of these small judgeship appointments or, or elections. That's just completely absurd. What do you think about when we hear, you know, Donald Trump talks about how there's three million illegal votes cast in, uh, in in 2016. That's why he lost by three million votes to Hillary Clinton in the popular vote. When we talk about voter fraud in this country, we usually talk about it in the context of people voting illegally because they're just that active in, in this democracy. How would you like to see us frame our conversation when it talks about when we talk about voter fraud? Because it seems right now the argument it's totally asinine. This idea that they that the Democrats somehow were able to get three million illegal people to vote—they can't get anyone to vote. Right now, even all the evidence suggests that the last place uh, 
illegals want to go uh, to our government uh, functions, government buildings. That's where you get arrested. That's where you could be challenged. So there's there's no evidence. I mean, the the massive study. There's really no evidence that 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 there's any voting uh, by illegals. Those are the last people uh, that would vote. Uh, But really, it's election fraud, and it's built Mm. into the system. Again, if you allow private partisan, you know, corporations to secretly program the firmware on the voting machines, the computer voting machines, and the software, you're inviting it. In fact, uh, Hmm. James Woolsey, I don't know if you saw his, uh, he co-wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, essentially saying every machine has to have a ballot, and that if any computer code is used, it has to be open source. Right. And then it should be done by, you know, nonpartisan election officials. This right. absurdity of Secretary of States like J. Mm. Kenneth Blackwell and, and Kemp being in charge of the of the voting process while they're running is an inherent conflict of interest. In a mm-hmm. just society, they would be arrested and put in jail. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. It it is. It just. It just looks so bad, and it's one of those things where you hear that. You're like, Secretary of State running for governor in charge of who can vote. Something doesn't seem right there, and I'm not sure how it's uh, allowed to uh, be normalized or has become normalized in this country that we would allow someone to hold both of those positions. I mean, it is, I, I, it's just a real head-scratcher. And um, I think the people of Georgia, my understanding is they, that the Abrams uh, camp, the the campaign has done a hell of a job go- going out there, getting new people involved in the system. And I guess this is when we really do test how well these individuals are able to purge the system and maintain their power. And so far, and I want to hear your assessment on this, Georgia seems to be doing pretty good at keeping uh, people off the uh, people uh, people out of the ballot box. Well, some of the reports of if you've purged 665,000 people uh, going back uh, to 2017, you know, and, uh, you know, well over, uh, you know, uh, 300,000 this year, and uh, early reports that 70% may have been black. I mean, you're targeting the heart of the uh, Democratic uh, core vote. Well, and especially, especially in the case with Stacey Abrams, she would be the first African American female governor, right. um, and so obviously that's going to be a little bit more of a motivating factor for the African American community. No, and it absolutely. Just, I mean, it just seems like it's just—it's so transparent, it's so obvious who they're attacking, how they're attacking them. What recourse do the people? Uh, have what? What is something that we could do then? If you show up at the voting polls and you're like, "No, man, I'm a I'm an American citizen. Here's my ID. I want to vote." What can we do that, or is that just one of those things where fun to say in theory? Yeah, you you can you can demand a provisional ballot. You know, kind of the second but now, class. Do they have to? Yeah, do they have to count the provisional ballots? Well, they have to look at them, and then they decide. You know, we've had areas that uh, uh, in Ohio that 40 percent of those were, you know, thrown out. Right. Uh, is no good. Uh, a lot of it, and a lot of people don't know, in most states uh, that I've worked in, and I've worked in many, you can, after voting provisional, you need to follow up and go down to the Board of Election and bring even more proof. Because what they're determining, and a lot of these aren't counted for 10 days uh, in right. many states. 
states. Uh, and uh, I, I got a list one time from Franklin County here in Columbus, Ohio, and they had stuff like uh, they didn't count 150 because people signed below the line instead of on the line. Right. Uh, or, or they left, they used an initial on the outside envelope, but not on the inside ballot, thus raising the question if it was the same person. Well, I mean, use some common sense here. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. It's- Totally insane. So when it comes to the when it comes to the ballots, obviously we don't want to have uh, two thousand all over again with the ridiculous hanging chads. I mean, it doesn't get any dumber than that. Right. Um, but what do you think about a printable receipt? Like you go out there, you, it, if it has to be digital, keep it digital, I suppose. Get the dang thing working right. But then a printed receipt that then lets you have some paper evidence of who you voted for. Then perhaps submit that into sort of a backup. Um, so it, that, the, so they're both, uh, just to, just to check the digital is, is something like that. Would that be possible? Well, there actually was that system in place that, uh, Ethan Gibbs who died tragically prior to the 2004 election. I, I wrote a, uh, a major work for motherjones.com and, uh, it was the front page of the free press. He died about a week later. He's also the source that pointed out a lot of these companies had been close to the CIA uh, hmm. and had worked for them overseas using mainframes uh, uh, to rig elections. But he actually came up. He was an accountant. And, uh, you know, I remember when, he, uh, when I first saw him, he's going, okay, uh, if you're an investigative reporter, why does Diebold give you a receipt at their ATM, but they don't give you one when you vote? Right. That's interesting. You mentioned the CIA. So can we just lay out just thank you so much for uh, for being on the show. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, but just a little bit more of your time. Can we just lay out the companies that are in charge of the voting machines and if any just specific ties to government or or uh, the CIA, any of these uh, institutions? OK, so who are the companies right now that control the voting machines. ES&S is one of them, right? And they're in 26 yeah, states. Yeah, the uh, and those uh, remember early on uh, the Urasevich brothers, who developed a lot of these early patents, uh, who were thought to be close to the intelligence community. Okay. Uh, I mean, part of the assumption is that uh, that which we used to do covertly in the third world, we now do overtly in the United States. Hmm. Uh, there's uh, a variety of stuff in my book. There's a, a guy, there was a guy at the Bureau of Standards uh, who from since the 64 election, when they first used mainframes to do counting, uh, had spent, you know, had sent out warning after uh, warning. Uh, Seidel was very uh, uh, famous. Uh, they were counting the overseas voting uh, in, you know, up till the last election. Uh, but they had ties uh, they're actually a foreign corporation uh, oh. from uh, Barcelona, uh, and they were allowed to count the overseas votes, uh, and particularly in the presidential elections, as well as the uh, uh, you know U.S. citizens uh, voting from abroad. But 36 wow. states allowed them to plug in directly to their mainframes, which breaks all security uh, protocols. So we talk about the Russian hacking. We talk about them having 
uh, meme farms, all of this kind of stuff, attacking people on social media or spreading misinformation. This, to me, just seems so much worse. The idea of a foreign company actually having access to our voting machines. Yeah, no, they, I've, I've written excessively you know, about uh, uh, Seidel. They did later buy up a small uh, U.S. company so they could say that they were uh, U.S.-based. Although wow. in 2012, when we went to their headquarters, it looked like it was in a private residence near Langley. Uh, and then uh, when, when we took pictures of it, uh, they moved the operation to, to a small rental office somewhere in Baltimore. Unbelievable. The book is uh, one of the many books, but I think this one, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this book covers what we've been talking about a little bit here. It's called How the GOP Stole America's 2004 Election and is Rigging 2008. And I'm sure you've got multiple articles out there about this vote stripping, uh, you know, just overall election fraud. Um, so go out and read Dr. Robert Fitrakis, because I think you're a total expert. You are, in my opinion, the expert on this. And it's just a conversation that has to be had much, much more. And I don't understand why media isn't talking about this almost ad nauseum here leading up to the midterm elections. What do you think? And I don't want to ask for predictions solely because I am never right. Um, but what do you think is, I suppose, oh, what, what do you think in a broad stroke is going to happen here uh, regarding the midterms and the Democratic Party and the Republicans here? Do you think they're going to be able to uh, take the House? Uh, perhaps the Republicans hold on to the Senate. What do you, what do you think is going to happen? Uh, right now, I'm thinking the Dems are going to you know, pick up about 30 seats. Uh, so they should take uh, the House. Uh, you know, I think it'll probably end up being a toss-up uh, in the Senate. And again, the elector, uh, the electorate is so volatile. You know, you're right. Yeah. Uh, you know, who knows? A lot of it, it has a question of intensity. Uh, with the the weird horde caravan heading north, which seems right. to be. You know, somebody's got to be financing that, and probably the last people on earth that would do that would be the Dems, because it doesn't Horrible help timing. at all. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so, yeah, no, that's what, that's what uh, I'm thinking. Uh, but we also have technology out there. ES&S actually makes decent machines. They make a, a, a precinct-level uh, ES&S 200, and they okay. make an 850 a uh, you know central uh, tabulator and they have the ability to they actually are digitized banking technology come in german banking technology so they actually uh take a picture of every single ballot and and uh put them in audit logs to be easily audited the problem is uh, here in ohio and elsewhere they've won the right to turn the audit logs and the security features on. So we could start with something as simple as, you know, mandating that they turn their security on, their ballot imaging and their audit logs. Right. Yeah, I mean, how is that a difficult thing to request? Well, I requested it twice now in Ohio, and I lost both times. And I was accused of impugning the integrity of the Ohio voting system, which oh. I argued to the judge that had already been impugned, was universally <laughs> uh, held in disregard and disrepute. I was, in fact, trying to save it, but uh, I lost that battle. Oh, my God. I mean, it, it is, it's fascinating 
um, when we think that private corporations are in control of of who can vote and who can't vote, and we're seeing it on a regular basis. Uh, Texas and Georgia, the two most glaring examples in this most recent upcoming election, but I'm sure it's happening uh, all over the country. And would you? I mean, how much do you think, just finally, how many elections do you think have been on a local level, whether it be the House or maybe a Senate, uh, how many elections do you think have been changed for uh, political gain for one party? Oh, the, uh, you know, uh, start with the makeup of the Supreme Court. I mean, the 2000 election was absolutely stolen by, you know, private companies and big data like Choice Point, you know, with the illegal purging of Mm -hmm. 94,000 people in Florida Florida because they had a same or similar name of somebody who was a a felon. The 2004 was the most obvious. Uh, In the King Lincoln Brunsville suit, we actually found the architectural map showing the back door, you know, where the votes were counted in Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, by Smart Tech, a company run by a, a born-again Christian fundamentalist in claiming the Ohio mainframes went down. Uh, and, of course, uh, the last election, which should have been, uh, you know, would have never been counted by the U.S. State Department uh, or uh, U.S. aid, because in uh, 12 states that Donald Trump won, the exit polls were more than uh, three standard deviations outside the norm and were mm. red flags on uh, that somebody was tampering with the vote. Wow. Interesting. This is big stuff, and it has uh, not just um, ramifications for our country, but it has global ramifications, and it is absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for being on the show, Doctor. I really appreciate it. And uh, do you want, is there anything that you would like to tell our audience how they can find you and uh, maybe some articles you'd like to point out? Yeah, freepress.org. And also I have a book out, The Strip and Flip Election of 2016. And there's an updated version out. So um, they get a chance. It it has the history in a nutshell of uh, the problems with secret uh, for-profit partisan electronic voting in America. And thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, man. You're always the best. All right. All right, everyone. Well, thank you all so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Um, And again, that's Robert Fitrakis. Check out his book. It is The Strip and Flip Selection of 2016. Thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate it. You can find me on Instagram at BenKissel1, Twitter at BenKissel. It's open. I don't really look at it too often, Um, but that is what it is. Love you very much. Hail yourselves, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.